alongside the Bible, it's a book coveted by many Christians, published in seven different editions. Over the course of 42 years, it has sold over 2 million copies. These days, if you buy a copy, it spans, covers every country in the known world and provides fuel for prayer. The book I'm referring to, of course, is Operation World, authored by Patrick Johnson and due to spawn its eighth edition in 2009. If you are a Christian, yet have never used Operation World, could I encourage you to buy a copy when the new edition comes out next year, or go onto the website of Operation World and use the Pray Today section, where each day there's a focus on one country in the world to inform your prayers. You see, this is important that we have a a world vision, a world perspective. Christianity is a religion for the world, not just for Edinburgh. It's precisely because we as Christians believe this, that we therefore pray for every nation, and it's why a resource like Operation World is so valuable. But you know, you might be shocked if I told you that in fact this assumption of a world Christianity has not always been an accepted assumption even within the Christian church. Even within Christendom, some have at times not been willing to stretch their arms around the whole world. During our studies in Acts this year, we've seen how some quarters of the early church had a parochial perspective. They desired for Jesus to be made known, but only known among their Jewish contemporaries. Maybe just a little further out than that. I guess they would have preferred Patrick Johnson to maybe bring out a smaller prayer guide, something like Operation Israel. Maybe with an Operation Samaria appendix. Nonetheless, while the missionary minds of men is so often small, the missionary plan of God is so much bigger. We've already heard today the verse for the year resounded this morning in the church that Jesus had promised his disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. From one angle, the book of Acts is simply an unfolding of that promise being fulfilled. As the church, in the power of the Spirit, takes the gospel further and further and further afield. The spreading flame, which is the title of our series, is fanning out. This morning we thought about the beginnings of the first Gentile mission. The first mission to non-Jewish people. And tonight we continue to examine this landmark mission and we continue to see that the good news about Jesus is not only for Jews. It is for Gentiles. It is for the whole world. Operation world. Not just Operation Israel. It's God's agenda. And it should be our agenda 
2. So would you, would you turn with me again to the book of Acts, chapter 13, if you would reopen your Bible tonight. This is a, a chapter that helps us to see beyond our own nose, to see beyond our own neighborhood. It sort of pans back to the moon and gives us the, the world, the global snapshot. And so this is a big vision sermon tonight. Now, this 13th chapter, along with the chapter that follows, is the account of Paul's first missionary journey. There were three missionary journeys, and this was the first. The initial stop, we thought about it this morning, was in the, the country of Cyprus. But now, in verses 13 and 14, we come to the next leg in the journey. Now, verses 13 and 14, they read just like a, a travel itinerary, maybe seem dull on initial reading. But in point of fact, they not only set up the drama to follow, they also peel back the lid and give us an insight into the rigors of missionary life. You want to be a part of world mission? I think sometimes we imagine that to join Paul on his missionary journeys would have been a fantastically fun affair. Well, maybe at times it was swashbuckling stuff, but take a look at this. Paul and his companions endured some tough stuff on mission. Let's just notice in passing three hardships Paul's team endured. First, the extended and exhausting travel. A little bit of geography for you. From Cyprus to Perga was a distance of about 112 miles. They traveled this mainly by boat, about 100 miles, a little more. It was a, a pretty perilous journey in a day when boats aren't what they are today. Then upon landing in the uh, province of Pamphylia, they traveled by foot some five miles or so, and they came to the town of Perga. But it seems that almost immediately they traveled on from Perga to Pisidian Antioch. Now, this is just quite something. Look, just breezes over this as if it is nothing. But from Perga to Pisidian Antioch was a distance of about 100 miles. Not by boat. They are traveling this by foot. And what is, more, what is really remarkable is this was an uphill climb all the way. Pisidian Antioch, it lay atop a 3,600 foot summit. It could only be reached by one of the most difficult and dangerous roads in the ancient world. And it was notorious for robbers and thieves and the like. So there's the difficulty of the tough travel. Additionally, we also learn that they endure the loss of a team member. Verse 13 rather shortly reports that John left them to return to Jerusalem. Now this John, this is uh, the, the John Mark that we find in the New Testament. And he had apparently joined Barnabas and Paul when they left from Antioch, the other Antioch in Syria. It's perhaps significant that John Mark was not sent out by the church as Paul and Barnabas were. Maybe uh, he'd elected just to go himself, to chum them along. Perhaps they had asked John Mark to go as he had done on an earlier trip. Well, after the Cyprus visit, and a long sea voyage with John Mark, he probably felt part of the furniture. I mean, there was only three of them in the team. But suddenly, out of the blue, he announces in Perga, he's going. 
He's going to return to Jerusalem. Now, later in Acts, in chapter 15, this incident resurfaces and it causes a major flashpoint between Paul and Barnabas. More about that when we come to it. The funny thing is that this uh, bombshell of an issue, we don't even know the specific reason why it happened. Why did John Mark leave? Was it perhaps the, the rigors of the journey, the thought of a hundred miles uphill? Was it perhaps that John Mark, a, a staunch uh, Jew by background, was he, was he uncomfortable with the increasingly Gentile focus? Or was it that he was a relative of Barnabas, and seeing that Barnabas was being increasingly sidelined, it used to be that Barnabas was the team leader in the, in the duo. Barnabas and Saul, he was Saul's mentor. You notice here uh, in verse 13 that it's now Paul and his companions. And it's Paul and Barnabas from now on. Maybe he felt Barnabas, his cousin, was getting sidelined, you know. Well, whatever the reason, it must have been a hammer blow to Paul and Barnabas. To lose one-third of your team on the brink of the hardest part of the journey. And then additionally, adding insult to injury, there may have been a third hardship. The possible ill health of Paul. Now, this is not altogether certain, which is why I say possible. Yet Paul may have been suffering from an illness at this time too. Luke certainly doesn't record this explicitly. But Paul later mentions in the letter to the Galatians in chapter 4, uh, he says that on this first visit to southern Galatia, that's where they are, he had contracted a debilitating illness. That it was a really tough illness that he endured. And some people think that it was at this point in the journey that he faced this. They find it strange that Paul doesn't stop in Perga to evangelize the town, but he immediately goes on to the higher ground of Pisidia and Antioch. Maybe he was heading for higher climates that would have helped him recover. If this is true, then not only did Paul have to negotiate tough travel, not only did he have to negotiate team tension, but all the while he's negotiating a difficult illness on what is a hard journey in any case. Could this not be a reminder that Christian ministry is no immunization to suffering and struggle. That to the contrary, sometimes even on top of the inherent challenges of ministry, we can have other problems piled on top, and God allows that. Know what that feels like to be maybe on the brink of a year of busy ministry here at the chapel. And perhaps it's with some other issues in your life as well, as Paul had. Well, if life and ministry is an uphill struggle for you at the moment, be encouraged you're in good company. What an example Paul is of perseverance through the tough stuff. Paul is a, an example of plodding power. Plodding power. Can't always soar on the wings like eagles in our Christian lives, but we can sometimes crawl along the gravel like snails. Reminded of Charles Spurgeon, he once said that by perseverance, even the snail reached the ark. We can go places even as we just plod along. Paul plodded all the way 
uphill to Pisidian Antioch, and then he arrived in this Roman colony, this bustling, Gentile, mainly pagan city, full of its, of its idols and its gods. And the first thing Paul does is go to the synagogue. Hmm. Very interesting that this was the first thing that Paul does. And it brings us to the first of two important groups and the first of two points in this sermon. You see, when we say that the, the gospel is for the whole world, Biblically, we can divide that out into two segments, into two groups. And the first group are those people that we find in synagogues. So here's point number one. Jesus is for Jews. Jesus is for all nations, all peoples. But within that broader framework, Jesus is for Jews the first place Paul goes is into the synagogue. It's an ordinary service. He sits down with Barnabas. He sits through the traditional readings, one from the law, one from the prophets. And then the time arrives for the sermon. Customary practice was that the homily would be given by any able Jew. The only prerequisite was the synagogue hierarchy had to pick you to do it. And providentially on this occasion, they notice that these missionary visitors are with them and they say, they send word to them and they say, would you come and share a word of encouragement? Well, asking Paul, he was a preacher, asking Paul to preach is like asking an Olympic athlete, do they want to win a gold medal? And never one to pass up an opportunity. Verse 16 reports that Paul begins to preach in earnest. Notice he stands up. This was not the usually done procedure. Maybe for emphasis. Next, he gestures to the crowd something with his hand. I I particularly like this because it, it gives biblical basis to some of the gesturing we do in the pulpit. Paul evidently does this, though, to command attention. Listen up, folks. And then there's the the verbal uh, appeal for a hearing. Brothers, men of Israel, and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. I have something important to say. His body language, his verbal language, both say this. So, what does Paul have to say that is so important? Well, right in the middle of the sermon, in verse 23, notice Paul's main claim. God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. That's the big idea of Paul's sermon. God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. Or here's my paraphrase, Jesus is for Jews. That is quite a claim. Fanciful as it may seem, however, Paul quickly proceeds to prove his assertion. Like a seasoned lawyer, he builds his case, he marshals his evidence to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. And he says there are three proofs of this fact. Number one, the historical proof of a coming Messiah. The historical proof of a coming Messiah. In verses 17 through 22. Paul reminds the Jews of something they already knew. Over the centuries, God has been preparing for a coming 
Messiah. Now, whilst this does not in itself guarantee that Jesus is that coming Messiah, it nonetheless lends weight to the likelihood of a Messiah arriving. So Paul takes his Jewish friends on a whirlwind tour. He reminds them of their history. And he reminds them of how God has been working in their history. God has been working out his plan for the whole of humankind and especially through the nation of Israel. Notice, this is very striking, that God is the subject of almost every verb in this recounting. God chose the people of Israel and God made them prosper in Egypt, verse 17. With mighty power, he led them out, verse 18. And he endured their conduct for about 40 years. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan, verse 19. And God gave them judges, verse 20, as well as Saul, son of Kish, when they asked for it. Soon after, God removed Saul and, verse 22, he made David their king. See, this is not just history Paul is giving. This is his story. This is God working in Israel. And what is more, God made promises about David. Now, this is something very interesting that God did. Because Jews understood that many of these promises about David could not be ultimately fulfilled in David. I mean, even this verse, as great as... David was. Did David do everything God asked him to do? That was God's promise. The Jews understood that God had promised David a greater son. One who would come from David's line. And one who would do everything God desired him to do. The Messiah. So from David onwards, Israel has been waiting With bated breath, they've been standing on their tiptoes. John the Baptist, verse 23, further heightens the expectations as he lays out the red carpet for the Messiah. The Jews are champing at the bit by this stage. In other words, Paul is saying, everything is in place and everyone knows the time for Messiah is ripe. Therefore, Jesus could be that Messiah. But then Paul adds a second layer of evidence, the miraculous proof of a risen Savior. Now, while the historical proof merely creates potential for a Messiah, the miraculous proof points unequivocally to Jesus as the Messiah. Only recently Paul explains, Jesus has been killed in Jerusalem. The people of that city didn't recognize Jesus as Messiah. And without any grounds, they sentenced him to death under Pontius Pilate. Verse 27 and following. They hung him up on a tree to die, which meant that he was under God's curse by God's law in Deuteronomy. Yet while he was rejected by men, he was also at the same time accepted by God. How do we know? Through the miraculous proof of the resurrection. 
What a wonderful contrast this is the beginning of verse 30. It's been talking about all the things that they did to him, that the people did to him. And the last thing they did to him was they took him down from the tree and they laid him in the tomb. But then suddenly the subject changes and it says, but God raised him from the dead. Well, men clearly rejected Jesus and vilified him. God clearly vindicated his son. And what is more, as Paul, this risen Jesus, was seen by many witnesses. And by the way, he says, many of them are still around today. They're going around and they're telling their own countrymen that Jesus is the Messiah. So you see, there's the, the miraculous proof of the resurrection. And there's also the historical proof that God's been preparing the way. And then Paul just doesn't do anything by half measures. He has a third thing. The scriptural proof of a resurrected son. This perhaps would have been most significant to the Jews who were steeped in their scriptures, who knew their Old Testaments backwards and forwards. So Paul is keen to emphasize through his recount of the life of Jesus that everything he did and everything that was done to him was in fulfillment of the scriptures. The death of Jesus fulfills scripture, verse 27 and 29. Verse 29, look at That verse, for example, they carried out all that was written about him. He says, you can look in the Old Testament, you can check out passages like Isaiah 53, maybe he said that to them. And you will see that there was one there who was pierced for our transgressions. It's fulfilled in Jesus. And then he quotes from three passages, Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, and Psalm 16. And in general, these are pointing to the fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus. Psalm 16 is particularly significant because Jesus fulfilled the promise to be the only human being in all of history to die bodily and yet whose body did not see decay. Again, the Jews understood that Psalm 16 verse 10 couldn't possibly apply to David. David had died, David's body was in a tomb and it decomposed. And Paul is making the point that Jesus is the Holy One who would finally come. David's greater son. Paul says he's here. He's fulfilled the Scriptures. He's arrived. The historical proof makes it possible. The miraculous proof makes it evident. And the Scriptural proof confirms this to be incontrovertible that Jesus is your Messiah. Jesus is for Jews. Now, saying that, both then and now, can get you into a lot of trouble. Jesus is for Jews. It can make you seem especially intolerant. Uh, Claims of anti-Semitism easily arise, and we can be very fearful of that kind of thing. I remember reading about a group of pastors in the United States, and they were very supportive of an organization called Jews for Jesus a good evangelistic organization, mainly Jewish Christians, who reached out to their countrymen. And they faced such an amount of scorn because of their affiliation to that movement. Interestingly, it wasn't Jewish groups who were critical. It was liberal church leaders. And they wrote to these pastors and they said, this is a bigoted thing to attempt to evangelize Jews. Well, 
Paul evangelized Jews. That's all I know. Jesus evangelized Jews. Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of Judaism, not an alternative to Judaism. And so we too must have a heart for Jewish people. You know, there are 6,000 Jewish people in Scotland. There are something like 1,000, maybe a bit more, here in Edinburgh. Maybe you know some people who are, are Jews. Maybe you're afraid of evangelizing them because they are Jews. Well, notice Paul isn't worried about being politically correct. Paul believed that Jews were special in the sense of being God's people, but they weren't special in terms of their sin. Jews were sinners like anyone else. Jews needed the gospel like everyone else. And Jews face the same stark choice that anyone else faces. On the one hand, Paul says, you can trust in Jesus and you will receive forgiveness and justification. Forgiveness, verse 38, meaning that God will wipe away the charges against you and justification verse 39 meaning that God will deliver a righteous verdict upon them that's what justification is it's God's legal declaration that a believing sinner is righteous in his sight you say how can God justify a sinner and the answer is because God first conferred guilt upon an innocent. The Lord Jesus Christ, though he was the only man who never sinned, switched places with us, as it were. When he died on the cross, he bore the curse we deserved. He paid the price we should have paid. God looked at him and he said, guilty. And it was our sins that was upon him. And so Paul is saying to these Jews, the possibility is here today for you to be forgiven and for God to say you are righteous in his sight. He also reminds them, don't go back to the law. Don't think that the law, keeping it, can save you. It's only believing in Jesus that can do that. I wonder if you, this evening, have put your faith in Jesus. I wonder if you are still relying on some code, some law, some moral standard that you have. And you think, if I keep that, God will accept me. Paul says, no. Faith in Jesus, the one who saves, is the only way. Now, it's a choice. It's a choice. Paul says, there's another option. You can trust in Jesus or you can reject Jesus. But you must know that rejection will inevitably result in judgment. That's not a threat. It's, it's, a fa- it's just a fact. And Paul quotes from this passage in, in Habakkuk. I don't have time to unpack the whole background, but it's a passage that, that warns against just scoffing at God's message. People of Israel were living in disobedience and God sent them a message that he would judge them if they didn't turn back and they just ignored it. They just scoffed it out of the room. And God, in fact, was about to judge them in a way that they wouldn't even imagine. He was about to raise up King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, a pagan superpower who would invade and who would judge them. In the same kind of way, says Paul, if you mock Messiah Jesus, be warned, the judgment that God will confer upon that is beyond your imaginings. 
You know, sometimes people ask about the, the hard passages in Scripture about judgment. They say, surely these must be over-exaggerated. Listen, there's a case to be made for saying that perhaps they are under-exaggerating. Paul says, you wouldn't believe the judgment even if someone told you. So don't reject Jesus, for Jesus is for Jews. The gospel is for you. But the good news is not just for Jews. The gospel is for the whole world, including Jews. So pressing on to the second and final group. Notice this. Jesus is for Gentiles. The Olympic Games is such an inclusive event, isn't it? We've seen these countries come from all over the world. You know what my favorite medal was? They were talking about it quite a lot in the press. Afghanistan won a medal. And they were just talking about how Afghanistan, it was a country very much on the fringes of things. And here was not only an athlete competing, but actually winning a gold. You know, the good news is, when it comes to Jesus, there are no excluded nations. There are no excluded people. Everyone is invited to the games. And we learn in the remainder of the story that Jesus has come to offer forgiveness and justification to you if you're not a Jew, even if you are a Gentile. Now, there's actually a series of steps in how this comes to the Gentiles. I don't have time to unpack this, but if you want the The real unfolding of all this, you can read for bedtime reading Romans chapter 9 to Romans chapter 11. It's pretty heavyweight stuff. But it's essentially what what we see here in the narrative. The story of how the gospel goes to Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Well, here's how it works in a real story. First of all, step one, the Jews reject their Messiah. Strange, isn't it? Jewish rejection of Jesus, in one sense, is the beginning of the Gentile mission. Now, this is not to say that some Jews in Pisidian Antioch didn't become Christians. After Paul's first sermon, verse 43 records, there was significant initial interest from Jews. And so some of them invited Paul and Barnabas back the next Sabbath. Verse 43 also adds that many of the devout Jews and some God-fearing Gentiles immediately followed Paul and Barnabas who urged them to continue in the grace of God. Now it's slightly unclear in the wording, but most take this to mean that they probably became Christians. Seems to be the case. Nonetheless, when the next Sabbath rolls around, what we find is that the vast majority of the Jewish population reject Jesus. Arriving at the same synagogue seven days later, Paul and Barnabas are met with a surprise. Because this time, rather than just, you know, the quorum of Jewish men and a few other folks, the entire town, looks a bit hyperbolic here, I think, but just about everyone seems to be there. In the intervening week, as Words got around. These new men with their new message are just fantastic. Come along and hear them. But given that the vast majority of Pisidian Antioch were Gentiles, and that these pagan people were suddenly clamoring around the synagogue to hear Paul and Barnabas, you know, these visitors, the Jews were clearly irritated. 
I mean, they'd been around, you know, hundreds of years and they'd never had this kind of response. Verse 45 summarizes, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Eventually, some Jews stir up so much trouble that Paul and Barnabas get run out of town and are forced to go somewhere else. But it's not all lost because the Jews reject their Messiah, step one, yet there's a knock-on effect. Secondly, the apostles now turn to the Gentiles. For as Paul points out to his Jewish abusers when they bring all these charges against them, he says, you know, you Jews, as important as you are, you're not the only ones God wants us to evangelize. Yes, well, verse 46, we had to speak the word of God to you first, given that Jews are those through whom Messiah has come. It's good to go to, right to go to them first. Nevertheless, Paul says, while you are the first to hear the gospel, you will not be the last. Since you reject it and don't consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, verse 46. Throughout Acts, we see this pattern. It's a sad pattern, actually, time and time again. Paul, who was a Jew of Jews by his origin, who loved the Jews, you see his heart breaking for them. I think it's in Romans chapter 10. And he goes into each town and he goes first into the synagogue and he preaches his lungs out about the Lord Jesus Christ and he does this wonderful arguing and most of the Jews reject him. Every time. Almost. And then they turn to the Gentiles and they say, do you want to know Jesus? As Paul put it in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first for the Jew Then, for the Gentile, often after rejection, comes the then. But Paul is not discouraged by this because he knows that this Gentile mission is the fulfillment of Scripture again. Isaiah 49 verse 6 says, I have made you, which Paul understands here to mean Jewish Christians, I have made you to be a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so shaking the dust off their feet, verse 51, uh, wasn't just because their feet were dirty, it was a way of saying the responsibility for your rejection lies with you. They leave the Jews behind, they're forced to leave the Gentile, mainly church behind, and they go somewhere else. They go to another pagan Gentile city with a few Jews. Because that's what God commanded them to do. It wasn't though... I love this. It wasn't a mission in vain for Paul and Barnabas. Because then comes the third step. The Jews reject the Messiah. The apostles turn to the Gentiles. But then God works in power and the Gentiles accept the message in their droves. Verse 48 says that when the Gentiles heard this, what did they hear? They heard that the gospel, that Jesus, is for Gentiles too. They liked that. And they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. We're told that the the gospel went throughout the whole region, beginning in the city center, and then the ripple effects out into the countrysides. Paul adds very significantly, and I don't like to skirt these issues, he does add that this was not only by their faith, their belief, 
uh, these Gentiles, it was also by the divine election of God. The Gentiles were ordained by God to be saved. Verse 48, and all who were appointed, it means assigned to eternal life, believed. This is not merely a reminder that our salvation is not just a matter of human decision, but divine appointment. But I think here it's a particular reminder too that God can save even the most difficult cases. See, I think that's the emphasis in this passage. I think this is why he brings it in here. The Gentiles are coming to faith. Is this of God? Gentiles, pagan people coming to faith? No, says Paul, listen, if God elects it, that can be so. If God appoints it, that can be so. This, you see, is not a restrictive thing about who can be saved and who, can, who won't be saved. This is an expansive thing that says even the worst of people, even the folks on the absolute fringes of your imagination, you think they can never become a Christian. You're wrong. You're wrong if God appoints it. It's an amazing verse. And the people there came to faith. It's remarkable, isn't it? A one-week mission in this place and a church was established and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and with joy is how the passage ends you know the the remarkable thing about this whole story is that in fact the mission that Paul and Barnabas began among the Gentiles to be this light they did not complete oh they went to a few more places Paul went on three mission journeys he covered a lot of territory a lot of people became Christians but Paul didn't finish the job and what God called Paul to do to be that light to the Gentiles as well as the Jews you know that is our call as a church God wants to expand our vision tonight to see this this broader perspective of what we're about as a church. We're not just a group of people who know Jesus, as wonderful as that is, but who just kind of meet together once a week and that's how all our Christian faith is. We are part of this dynamic global movement taking the gospel towards those in the greatest darkness. At the beginning of the sermon I mentioned uh, Operation World. And the, the Pray Today page, don't forget that, it's a wonderful resource. I think you can get it by email as well. There's another great resource that uh, I became aware of just about six months ago. Someone sent this. It's a website called The Joshua Project. You can find it online, www.joshuaproject.net. It's easy to find on Google, Joshua Project. It's a site dedicated to the progress of the gospel among the Gentiles. And I, think, I like to think this is a, a website that Paul the Apostle, if he was living today, he would check this daily. I think he would have checked this. Because it focuses especially upon the darkest places in the whole of the earth. It focuses on the, the unreached people groups. You understand that there aren't practically any unreached countries anymore, but there are many unreached people groups who have never heard the name of Jesus or not for a long, long time. And on this uh, website, they, they have the latest estimates about the extent of the darkness across the face of the world, and the estimate on the site this week was 6,750 people groups 
almost entirely unreached. On the map, the, the red spots there are the kind of rough locations where these groups are located. Do you think Africa's reached for Jesus? Not some parts of it. Breaks down into something like 2.72 billion people out of 6.69 billion who have virtually no access to the gospel. They have no light. Having no electricity is not their biggest problem, folks. They don't have the light of the gospel. And the light is still going out to the Gentiles, to these red spots. Here's three things that just came to me by way of application. And we're almost through. You've been very patient. First, here's three things you could do. First, get fired up about God's global mission. In fact, maybe I can't ask you to do that. Maybe that's something God has to do for us. But I do hope one impact of this sermon is to take church out of just being the humdrum thing that we just do every week. Second, get down on your knees. Get down on your knees. Are you praying each day for an unreached people group, for example? You say, how would I do that? Well, on the Joshua Project website, on the project, you can find the unreached people of the day. And it gives you all the information about them and you can get them to send that to your email or blog or whatever you use. That'll get the juices going. And God will use our prayers for these peoples. And then thirdly, here's a third thing. Get out into the world. Get out into the world. I wonder this evening, are you perhaps... And there must be somebody here. There must be someone here. Are you perhaps being called by God to go to one of these most difficult red spots? I'm not talking about the places, you know, that have been partly evangelized. I'm talking about taking a torch into a cave. Not everyone should go. You know, Paul and Barnabas, they were only two people from their church. And John Mark, he chickened out. And they had a whole church supporting them, understand that. But everyone should ask, should I go? Could I go? And if not, how can I support those who go? How can we become a church that's not just about letting Edinburgh know about Jesus, but which is about letting the world know? Operation Edinburgh isn't enough. Operation World is what God demands. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would now do what only you can do. Igniting our hearts, Lord, with some excitement and genuine passion to make this our life goal to take Jesus to those who are in darkness. Forgive us, Father, for our apathy. Forgive us, Lord, that sometimes we care more about the next car we're going to buy than we do about those unreached peoples, hundreds and thousands of people. Father, we pray that you would help us as a church to not only hear your word, but become radically responsive to what you're saying to us in these days. Thank you, God, for many who are, even at this point, in some very difficult places. We pray for them. Would you uphold them this evening? Help them to shine the light of Christ. Father, we pray that you'll help us to reflect on what 
you would want us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.